0: 11 o'clock service, how are we doing today? Pretty good, pretty good. Uh, So I get the privilege of uh, beginning our new series. Does anybody know what this new series is going to be about? Nice, seven deadly sins. So we're looking at a series uh, about the seven deadly sins over the remainder of the fall. And like I do often, uh, when we have a new idea, something that we're going to kind of launch out into Uh, One of the places I often turn to is Genesis 1 to try to figure out what is going on in this world. When I read Genesis 1, there is one thing specifically that stands out to me, and it's the phrase, saw that it was good. Saw that it was good. It's almost as if when you read that, that uh, there was a potentiality that it wouldn't have been good. that that maybe the creation in some kind of uh, roundabout way wouldn't have been what God desired, that God would have created everything that he created in six days and then take a step back, looked at it all, and said, oh, I could have done better here, or I wish I would have changed this. The author of Genesis wanting to assure us of the goodness reminds us six different times in the chapter verses 10, 12, 18, 21, 25, and 31, that God saw that it was good. It's as if the author wanted to make sure that we really knew just truly how good it was. You see, the garden is a picture of the world that God desired. People in relationship with each other, people in relationship with God, there was deep connection To the creation, there was purpose and meaning and all that was done. There was this perfect rhythm between work and rest. There was harmony and shalom. It was the created and physical extension of our merciful and gracious and loving Father. And in those first six days, God was pleased with how things were, so much so that he stepped back and he saw that it was good. The garden was the world that God created and intended, but then we know the story. Genesis 3 happens. Sin enters the picture, and immediately its corrosion begins to eat holes in God's created world. The goodness that God saw initially is tarnished, and thus begins the biblical story of pain and triumph, sadness and joy, Distance and closeness. And the rest of scripture is really the retelling of the journey trying to get back to the garden, which is in turn our story. The story of us seeking to get back to the way it was intended. So I ask this question uh, kind of rhetorically, but answer it seriously. How many have you noticed? that the world doesn't seem all that good sometimes. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't flashes of goodness all around us, that we experience, uh, you know, every week, every month, every day, maybe, that there are, there are good things that happen around us. In fact, just uh, a, a little while ago, I had the privilege of attending a vowel renewal ceremony of two of my closest friends. Our community was there, and, and these two people stood and once again affirmed their vows and, their, and, the, and the covenant that they had made, and it was, it was outside, and, and the storm had kind of rolled through, but then the storm had passed, and there was this beautiful sunset, and it was one of those moments that I was sitting there thinking, man, I, I think God is looking down right now on this moment thinking it is good, like there is goodness in this moment, right here. But if we were honest, those moments seem few and farther between than the others. The moments where we see our world absolutely ravaged. If it's not mall shootings, it's school shootings, and if it's not war, it's police brutality. If it's not racism, it's misogyny. If it's not some political scandal, it's corporate dishonesty, and there are these holes all around us. Sin has corroded and eaten holes into God's good world. And it's not just all out there. The devastation of sin is close to home. A few months before that vow renewal, I had this conversation with a friend of mine who was staring down a divorce. And as they were talking, I couldn't help but think of the wake of destruction that was about to be unleashed on this person. On their family. And in that moment, all that came to mind to kind of help this person process was it doesn't really matter whose fault it is at this point. Just be prepared that the wake being created will engulf your entire life. The devastation of sin is rampant, and it's not just in our friends' lives, it's in us as well. As much as I firmly believe we are all created in the image of God and have his goodness within us, I think we would be remiss to conclude that we too are not broken, that we too are not selfish, that the grips of sin have come upon us as well. This has been the common journey of all of humanity. It's a shared thread that we all have together. Since Christ walked this earth, devoted followers have noticed the holes in God's world and sought ways to sort and organize and understand sin. If we go way back to the 4th century, the desert father, Evagrius Pontus, in following Christ's example, entered the desert with a decision to face temptation head-on. This is a picture, a real-life picture of Evagrius right here. He went into the desert saying, I am going to figure out, I'm going to face temptation head on. He emerged later and had written down eight thoughts, eight sinful postures that he believed threatened all of humanity. We have come to know these as a list of seven deadly sins, and it is what we plan to study for the remainder of the fall. So let me, let me take a, just a brief moment and, and look at the history of this, because the history is quite, uh, quite interesting. Evagrius' list uh, included this. Gluttony, impurity, avarice, sadness, anger, acedia, vainglory, and pride. And these were the eight thoughts he believed could beset any disciple of Christ. These eight things, these postures, these thoughts, these sinful actions are the things that could derail somebody from following Jesus. So later, about 100 years later, in the 5th century, John Cassian, who was a student of Evagrius', brought this list to the Western church and accompanied the list with uh, specific ascetic practices that could be used to guard against them. In his bringing this list to the Western church, it kind of became a list, uh, the list was like institutionalized at this point. It became a, a church tradition, especially in the monastic side of the church. And it began to shape the rule or the very way in which monastic people would live their life. 200 years later, Pope Gregory I paired the list of eight down to seven. He did this because he believed it better symbolized completeness. The biblical number of seven is this idea of completeness, and he thought, well, it can't be that because it's not complete, and so we're going to pare the list down to seven. And he did this by combining acedia with sadness, making envy a standard member of the list, and placing pride as the root of it all. I'll show the list in a minute. This will all make sense. So then the list stays unchanged until the 13th century where Thomas Aquinas, in his famous text, the Summa Theologia, once more changed the list and changed it for the final time, drawing on a wide variety of philosophical and Christian thinkers. He then produces what he calls the seven capital vices or what we call the seven deadly sins. And this is how the list from the 13th century now stands to today. These being the seven deadly sins, lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. Now some of you know this list, you've recognized this, you could have uh, recited all seven, Seven, or uh, many of you don't even know what the seven deadly sins are until today. But regardless, these things have found their way into contemporary culture in a number of different ways. You could look through paintings over the last 1,500 years, and different artists have tried to uh, render these ideas in their paintings. Uh, Dante's Inferno, a a famous text many of us had to read uh, in school, is largely derived from this idea. There was a hit movie in 95 or 94, I believe, Seven. How many people have seen the movie Seven? Many of you weren't even born when this movie was out, but it was a hit movie, in fact. Uh, the movie was all uh, kind of based on this, uh, uh, on, on the idea of the seven deadly sins. One of our greatest American poets, in fact, uh, used the seven deadly sins as a topic of their poem, and I, I thought it would be interesting to read this this morning. So, what it says. Seven deadly sins... Seven ways to win, seven holy paths to hell, your trip begins. Seven downward slopes, seven bloodied hopes. Seven are your burning fires, seven your desires. Anybody recognize this poem? By, uh, like I said, a great American uh, poet Iron Maiden wrote that. Guys, that's funny. Come on, you gotta laugh at that. So the the idea of the seven deadly sins uh, is throughout contemporary culture. Interestingly, it, it's actually not found in uh, in the Bible. There is no list of the seven deadly sins in Scripture. It's you can't turn to the page where it says these are the seven deadly sins, or these are the seven capital vices. However, Paul gives a number of lists throughout his writing. Uh, Many of them contain these seven items uh, plus additional items. But even still, for millennia, the seven vices or the seven deadly sins have been a tool driving the process of self-examination. They are not the seven worst possible vices, nor are they an exhaustive list of all sin. But it is a list that has stood in church tradition for hundreds of years. And what I find so fascinating is that even though it's been a list first created 1,700 years ago, they are still contemporary issues. We can look at these things and say, these are things in our culture right now, today. We chose The Seven Deadly Sins because it presented what we believe is an opportunity to unabashedly deal with the sin in our lives and in our community. And we believe it can guide us into relevant conversation and reflection and hopefully transformation. In trying to uh, describe The Seven Deadly Sins, Cassian used this metaphor, which I think is uh, really interesting, Uh, It's the metaphor of a tree. And he says this, With pride as the root system and the trunk, the tree then has six main branches, each representing one of the remaining vices. And each of those branches then grows smaller branches. And each of those smaller branches has the ability to produce poisonous fruit. He says this, For a tall and spreading tree of a noxious kind will the more easily be made to wither if the roots on which it depends have first been laid bare or cut. And a pond of water, which is dangerous and will be dried up at once if the spring and flowing channel which produce it are carefully stopped up. You see, if we truly want to stop sin in our lives, then we can't just admit that the tree is present. We need to be willing to cut down the tree. We need to be willing to stop the flowing spring. And this presents us with what I believe is one of the greatest paradoxes of the Christian life. And it's our need to constantly own and disown the sin in our lives. To recognize it, but then flee from it. In humility to acknowledge and admit its effects, but then seek a different way. If I look at Cassian's metaphor of the tree, put myself in that position, it sometimes feels like I just get that spring of water diverted or or, or maybe just the tree. I, I just get all of the wood stacked from chopping that tree down. And I take my gloves off and I put the axe down and I walk into the front yard just to find a new, fully grown tree. We have to own it and disown it at the same time. I think Paul speaks about this in Romans 7 when he says this, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. but the sin that dwells within me. Like I said before, I, I fundamentally believe in the goodness of all people. But doesn't Paul's rambling admission make total sense? How many of us have thought, actually, in the moment, I cannot believe I am doing this right now? Why am I doing this? Why do I live this way. I know that I shouldn't, but I can't stop. About uh, probably four or five years ago, uh, my, the, my family and I, my, my wife and my family and I, we started this thing called a nighttime adventure. And I'll explain what a nighttime adventure is. We recognized uh, quickly kind of in our uh, upbringing of our kids, we had three little boys all pretty close, uh, twins, and then another one that came about two years later. So we had a, a real young family all uh, in a pretty short amount of time. And we realized if we don't create some rhythms in our life where we're able to spend time with adults, we, we are going to die a slow death. It's, it's going to be terrible. So we figured this thing out called a nighttime adventure. And a nighttime adventure is uh, we would uh, get our kids and, and uh, get all their PJs and bedtime stuffed animals and blankets and all this kind of stuff. We'd get it packed up. We'd go to a friend's house, and then we'd commit to say... Uh, we're going to hang out and have dinner together as a family, and then we're going to put our kids to sleep at your house, if you're fine with it. And then we're going to hang out and be with the adults and, uh, and have fun and socialize. And then when we're ready to go home, we'll wake our kids up, put them in the car and take them home and uh, put them back to sleep in their own beds. And our, our boys loved it. It was like this cool adventure thing. They're up late in the evening driving home. And, and it's just been a, a rhythm that has worked with us, something that, we again, we started maybe five years ago, and uh, we do uh, to this day. Well, we have uh, great friends uh, and, uh, and we tended to be at their house a lot and we would bring our kids and we would do these nighttime adventures and they were gracious enough to say, um, why don't you just put all three of your kids to sleep in our king bed? So uh, it was upstairs and all three of our little kids would uh, go into their bed and fall asleep eventually. It usually would take 30 or 45 minutes because they're so amped up by being all in the same bed, but uh, it was worth it to us. We realized quickly that, uh, that we had to be very aware of some of the things that were in uh, the room at this point. Our middle child, Berg, who if you know Berg, is uh, an incredible, incredible little boy. He is a little squirrely, though, and uh, he's always been that way. We've known that he was going to be that way from a very, very early age. Uh, but he's got an incredibly sensitive heart, and, and he's imaginative and, and wonderful, and, but he does like to get into stuff. And so we learned the hard way, uh, kind of a, a first pass at this, that uh, we put all three of them to bed, and, and we came in later that night to pick them up, and we had noticed that there was pen mark all over the sheets of the bed, because Berg had found a pen next to the, to the side of the bed, and took the cap off, and was fascinated by it, and drawing on sheets and hands. And so we learned quickly, like, okay, when we do this, when we do nighttime adventures, we've got to clear the room. Like, we've got to get in there first, and clear the room, and make sure that there's nothing in there. So uh, we uh, went back to the same house. This is at uh, Brad and, and Julie's house. And our three kids are uh, sleeping in their king bed. And we have gone through and fully cleared the room. And uh, everything is great. And, you know, around 10, 30 or 11, whenever we we're going to go home, go in and uh, wake Berg up. And I realize that Berg's hand is clenched like this when he's sleeping. We get the other kids out to the car, and, and I'm kind of wrestling Berg up. And he's in that, like, weird, totally sleep state, but kind of awake state. And I'm trying to figure out, I'm like, Berg, what's in your hand? What's in your hand? And he's not really answering. And finally, I'm able to pry his hand open. And in there is a bunch of crumpled up paper. And I kind of look around and I'm looking and I notice, oh man, Julie's Bible is no longer on her, her bedside table at this point. It's like kind of scattered and pushed over into the corner. And so I pull out the crumpled up paper out of Berg's hand and unwrinkle it, and it's uh, a majority of the book of Hebrews has been ripped out <laughs> and just in Berg's hand, clenched. Of course, we're unbelievably apologetic, and Julie, I'm sorry about the Bible, or, you know, we'll get you a new Bible, all this kind of stuff. And and uh, and, and we get home, and, and that next morning we're sitting, I'm sitting with Berg, and, and I'm just, I'm kind of dumbfounded at this point because, um, you know, you there was consequences all this we had had these conversations a number of times and I'm just like Berg what why would you do that like you know not only do you not rip pages out of a book but it wasn't even your book so <laughs> why are you ripping pages out and he just looks at me in this moment with uh big eyes and he just says I know daddy but I loved the way it feels and Berg, as we've gotten to know him, and, uh, and he be, has become one of my closest friends. Berg is very tactile, and he loves the way things sound and loves the way things feel. And my guess is, in that moment, the sound of ripping paper and the, the feeling of clumping up in his hand was fascinating and felt really good to him. And so, in that moment, pure honesty, and what I think is a very prophetic word, he said, I know, Daddy, I shouldn't have done it, but I love the way it feels. I believe that statement captures what Paul is rambling on about. I believe it captures the essence of our relationship with sinful nature. I know that I should not do this, but I love the way it makes me feel. We know that we want to change. We know the destruction in our lives, but we're addicted to how it feels. We know from the book of Romans that the wages of sin are death. Not only our physical and spiritual death, but the death of goodness that God first intended and i believe the true job of a disciple is not to simply focus on that death but be a person that restores goodness. And so this series the seven deadly sins will not be just about death. Now certainly we hope to instruct how we might flee from sin, but we want to make sure that we are always talking about what are we running towards? If we're fleeing away from these things, we have to be running toward something. It will be far more than a study of sen- seven sinful actions and postures and the holes that they create in God's wor- world. With each week as we study one of the sins, we'll look at ways that we can be a people that fill those holes. Historically, the seven deadly sins have always stood up alongside what are called the seven Cardinal virtues. They're listed behind me chastity and temperance, charity, diligence, patience, kindness, and humility. These would be the things that we run toward. Practicing the cardinal virtues is said to protect against the temptation of the seven deadly sins rather than living a fear. Of, the, uh, of transgression, the idea is that you orient your life around godly and biblical virtues that in turn shape who you are as a person. Another historical way and perhaps what I find more compelling way to look at the seven deadly sins is to compare them with the Beatitudes. Let me read them this morning. Matthew 5, 2-12 says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. If the seven deadly sins represent a hellish lifestyle, then the Beatitudes represent a picture of a godly lifestyle. In the beginning of what many believe to be his most important public sermon, Jesus uses the introduction, the Beatitudes, to try to capture the essence of the garden's original intent by painting the picture of how it might manifest itself in a person's life. If you want to get back to the original goodness, be this type of person. The Beatitudes are a picture of the world restored of the world healed and redeemed. It's the plan for how we fill the holes in God's world that have been caused by the corrosion of sin. Jeff Cook, who writes about this idea of the Beatitudes, says this, I want something else. I desire someone to fill these empty places in me, but I often don't know what will do the job. Yes, I have loved God for a long time. Pray for his help and guidance and strength to change, but often the holes just feel too deep. At times, I feel like I don't have the energy to wrestle anymore. It's easier to give myself over to these tendencies, to these voids, to just let them do their thing. But yet another part of me says this just isn't right. This is not how things are supposed to be. I want to be alive in ways I can only dream of. I want to shed this dead weight and run again. I want what I think Jesus had, passion, joy, wonder, an invigorated soul. The Beatitudes offer me and offer you that reality. They are the antidote to the poisons we so readily consume. Our plan is to weekly study one of the deadly sins, how it's manifested in our world and in our lives. But more importantly, each week we will look at the counteracting beatitude or virtue and challenge ourselves to be these types of people. So let me close with this last idea as we begin to think through the fall, as you begin to think through how, how might we discuss these things in group or, or, or with others who are here this morning. And the idea is this, invitations. You see, we all have experience with invitations. We've been invited to something. And once you're invited to something, you have to make a choice. Do I go or do I not go? I believe we each face a series of invitations every day. We're invited to live a life as a slave to sin, a hellish life that only brings death to myself and the world around. But then we're given another invitation. It's the invitation of the virtues, the invitation of the Beatitudes, an invitation to help return the world to the goodness that God once saw in it. We are either a people that causes more destruction or a people that helps to create more goodness that we see in Genesis 1. Interestingly, At the end of that same sermon that Jesus begins with the Beatitudes, Jesus assures us that there are really only two choices, two invitations, if you will, that come to us. He says this in Matthew 7, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. There's really only two options. The path of the seven deadly sins invites us to walk down the wide path of destruction. Yet those who walk the narrow path towards life live a life of virtue, a life that embodies the Beatitudes. So as much as this series we're about to embark on is about the seven deadly sins, it's really not about the seven deadly sins It's far more about being who I believe God has invited us to be, a restorative and redeemed people. It's about humbly admitting our brokenness, seeking a new way, and filling the holes in God's world. Would you pray with me?